I hope you become accustomed each week to know that we plan our services um, like we are planning a trip. And, and there is a road map. And we go from point to point to point to get to our destination. Sometimes that means that we look back behind us at where we've been. Sometimes it means we look ahead at where we're going. Uh, but we're always deliberate uh, in the things that we say. Uh, I don't want that to be something that you bother yourselves with and it becomes too cerebral for you. But I do hope that over the course of time uh, that you understand that every passage of Scripture, uh, every song, every lyric, even the words, particular words as Adam drew to our attention today, even looking back at our psalm today and words and themes are continuing to surface. I, I write out a little bit of a roadmap for our folks as we send our worship guides out. And uh, I was reminded, uh, as we sang Rock of Ages today, Moses looked to God as his rock. Habakkuk looked to God as his rock. Said those very words. And then here we are in 2022, and what do we do? We look to God as our rock. Why? Because He was rock with Moses. He was rock with Habakkuk. He's rock with us. It's who we anchor to. It's who we look to. He has not changed. Um, and people's need for Him uh, have not changed. And uh, our need for Him certainly uh, has not changed. And I hope that just in the giving thought to that, that you are encouraged and blessed to think, you know what? Today, I sang some of the same things that Moses sang when he wrote that hymn and that prayer in the context of that prayer, which became a song. When Habakkuk wrote the song uh, at the end uh, of, of his prophecy, that's what chapter 3 is, is a psalm. And people sang it then, and we're singing it uh, today. You have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to uh, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, primarily. We set out last week, took a, kind of a broad overview of Habakkuk. hope it was helpful to you and, in, and encouraged you, maybe even challenged you in some ways. Um, it, it may help us, though, to go back and revisit for just a minute uh, the historical context uh, the year is somewhere around 610 B.C. Uh, there is a new up-and-coming world power. For almost a thousand years, the Assyrians had been ruling. Uh, and we look and see that God said, told Habakkuk, He said, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. In other words, He was raising up Babylon. Uh, whenever Assyria was ruling, um, everyone paid tribute to them. Uh, if they didn't, uh, the army came knocking on the door. In fact, in 722 B.C., the armies came knocking on the door of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and they fell. Now, God was behind all of that and working in the midst of all of that. We know that. But God had allowed even these Assyrians, these pagans, to come uh, and to uh, kill His people 
take some of them away, destroy their land, remove their resources, um, not entirely decimate them because there was going to be a, a remnant, but to, to, to do His work. And now, about 125 years later, God is telling Habakkuk that something similar will occur uh, in Judah. But this time it won't be the Assyrians. It'll be the Babylonians. And, and remember, God's revelation to Habakkuk comes because Habakkuk is concerned about the sin of Judah. In fact, chapter 1, those first four or five verses all focus on him asking God uh, this, these hard questions. Um, well, what are you going to do? And, and when? Because Habakkuk understands that things cannot continue to go on the way they are. We related a little bit of that last week whenever we met because we understand in looking at our culture today, right here in the United States, we know it can't go on like it is. It just can't. We know that. And we know who God is. And much in the same way as Habakkuk, we understand that God is not going to let it go on. We just don't know what He's going to do and when. Don't know how He's going to do it. But we know that it can't go on. Habakkuk knew that reform needed to take place. He knew Judah's sin couldn't go on and Judah survive in the same way that we have recognized that. He also knew that, that God wouldn't let it go on. He couldn't. He even talks about the purity of God in, in about halfway through chapter 1. He says in verse 13, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He recognizes the purity of God, and realizes that the purity and righteousness excuse me, and justice of God uh, wasn't going to let it stand. But he wasn't able to reconcile in his mind why God would allow a ruthless people, a pagan people, a God-hating people. He just couldn't reconcile in his mind how God could use them as a tool to bring judgment or to bring reform or to clean things up in, in his people. And we probably would be the same way as Habakkuk is. And, and we find there in the beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk is waiting for God to help him understand how that could be possible. And then God gave him a word. And he told Habakkuk, look at it there in chapter 2, uh, in, in verse 2, he said, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Make it plain on tablets. What was he saying? Doesn't it make sense? He's looking back at the tablets that God with his own finger wrote on and gave to his people. Something that was engraved in stone. In other words, the intent was it is always going to be here. And what he's getting ready to say is of the same significance, it might even be of greater significance in some ways. Because he's writing in stone what is about to take place, and at the very outset in the heart of that, here's what he has to say. And you'll find it in verse 4. This is of lasting importance. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to hear that again. 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. Whose soul? Well, he's pointing back to the Babylonians. But he is also, God is also saying that everyone who does not live by faith, everyone who is not righteous, everyone, and we're going to look, I believe he's even talking about justification here, everyone who is not justified is puffed up and it is not upright within him. And, and we concluded that basically God is stating that there are only two ways of life. There's the way of life and there's the way of death. Okay? We're on one path or the other. Every person that's living today is on one path or the other. They are on a path to life for all eternity with God. Or they are on a path to death. Writer of Proverbs said at least half of it in this way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And, and if we didn't get it in 1412, well, in 1625, he says it exactly the same way again, verbatim. Why? Because we needed to know, just like when Habakkuk is here, and God says, put this down on stone so that everyone will hear and see. And we even pointed last week, that meant and means Oak Valley Church, even again here today, even again here today, at the end of November of 2022, so that they will do what? So that when they hear it, they will recognize it, and they will run from what they need to run from, and they will run to who they need to run to. Now, I'm going to pause here. Because we've been talking about and making this connection back to disciple making. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. In fact, I've titled this message today, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith, Faith and Discipleship. Colon, Faith and Discipleship. It plays a role in this thing of our disciple making. Why? Because there are these messages that come from God that everyone needs to hear and to know so that they will know, am I on this road or am I on this road? And we've already read what the writer of Proverbs had to say. Solomon said what? He said, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is destruction. So in other words, we really do have people who think that they are on the right path. They really think that where they're, what they're on is going to lead them to life. And it, and it won't. And we need to be aware of that. God is saying, the prideful, God-rejecting person, no matter how right he or she may think they are, will not go unjudged or unpunished. That is one side of this comparative statement and the other side is this the righteous shall live by faith and it's out of that statement that God speaks of the judgment of the Babylonians and what's so important in this case is God told Habakkuk that he would witness it notice what he says there in chapter 2 we looked at it briefly he says if it's in verse 3 if it seems slow wait for it it will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, don't think that what I am going to do through them 
and then ultimately with them and to them. Don't think that it is not going to happen. And we know in both cases that it happened. We know from Jeremiah, he's standing in Jerusalem and he's been telling them all along. He said, do not go in partnership and alliance with Egypt. Do not do that. Do not do that. Do not do that. Go ahead and let the Babylonians, go ahead and let them take us. That's what he says. That's what he keeps telling the people. And everybody keeps looking at him like he's got three heads. All we've got to do is get hooked up with Egypt and, 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 and our problems are solved because Egypt and us will defeat Babylon. When God puts His finger on even the evil for His work, it doesn't matter how much you think you're good, it is not going to counter that. And that's what Jeremiah kept saying over and over again. They finally got tired of hearing Him, and you know what they did with Him? They threw Him in a pit. They threw Him in a pit. Then they took Him out of the pit and hauled Him off. And all along the way, even when He's being hauled off to Egypt, He's telling them, He said, don't do this. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. If you want to be spared, go outside and just give up to the Babylonians because this is what God has planned for us. And that took place. It took place in Habakkuk's lifetime. But then we found out in chapter 2 that God then begins to talk about the judgment that will come to Babylon and Babylon representing all of those who are prideful. If, if they're prideful people in here who reject God, never turn to Him, never look to Him, never cry out for mercy from Him, never trust Him. If you have family members, no matter how well-thinking they are, no matter how much you want them to be saved, no matter how much you want eternal life for them, if they reject God, they will not be able to stand in the judgment. They will not. That's something to force to get our minds around, isn't it? It really is. Aunt Susie, Cousin Jackie, Brother Tommy, we love them. Sarah that sits across the aisle from us that works at another desk. Billy that's in co-op with us whenever we're in class. The point is, is that he is showing that this stuff is going to take place. What's interesting is, and if you will turn over there for just a minute, Babylon does fall. Turn to Daniel chapter 5. Now remember, Daniel was in Jerusalem when Jeremiah is telling them, when Jeremiah is saying, go on outside and give yourself up. Daniel's there in the area with him. He's a contemporary. Well, they come and they jerk up Daniel and all the other, the, 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 the wisest, the smartest, the youngest, the best, and they haul them off. They haul them off. They kill a bunch of them. But they haul the brightest and the best off. Daniel's a part of that group. And when Daniel gets to where he's going, there in Babylon, uh, 
if you read Daniel, you'll begin to see how God begins to use him. But this is what's interesting. In chapter 5 of Daniel, Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler at the time that Jerusalem was taken, Belshazzar throws this big party and they're celebrating their victories. Remember, they're drunk in their own wine of pride. We saw that last week. They're drunk in all of this. All this stuff is going on. All this stuff is going on. And they're celebrating and they're having a big time. And then God shows up again. And this time He's writing on a wall, not on a tablet. And His finger, or a finger that He put there, writes this message on a wall. And uh, if y'all haven't studied this, this is really interesting. Writes this message on a wall. And uh, he doesn't have a clue what it says. So he starts calling in all the wise men to come in. And no one's able to tell him what it says. And he calls on Daniel. He even says, Daniel, I'll pay you a whole lot of money. Daniel says, just keep your money. Just keep your money. And Daniel told him what the message said. And then, if you will, look at the very last verse. All this takes place in one night. The very last verse of chapter 5. And that very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Exactly what God told Habakkuk would happen, happened. Now, why is all this important? Because remember, there is the other side of that equation, the other side of that comparative statement, and that is the righteous shall live by faith. And our aim here in the next few minutes is to begin unpacking that statement to see how the righteous shall, living by faith, be essential to disciple making. We're still considering Jesus' imperative from Matthew chapter 28 where He says, Your work, church, is making disciples in all nations. Now let's go back to the statement. The righteous shall live by faith. So what does it mean? What does it mean and how is it necessary for disciple making? That's what we want to try to find out. And you may recall last week that we said that it means the righteous shall live by faith means at least three things. First, it means that the person comes alive through regeneration. That they're given life. They move from death to life. We said that and that is through regeneration. And that's not the sum total of that statement. In some way, it can be said that it begins there. It might even, we can say it begins with election. But the actual working of itself begins at that point. Second, we stated that it points to conduct that can be characterized as a life by faith. Living faithfully. That's the second thing. And then... And maybe a better way to say that is to just continue in faith. And third, we said that it means that a righteous person survives judgment. We know that from Psalm 1 because we understand that in Psalm 1 we know that the unrighteous will not be able to stand in the judgment. Meaning, what do you mean won't be able to stand? Well, will not be able to stand there before the judgment being declared righteous. They're going to be brought to, to, to the judgment, but they're going to be condemned. Now, now let's attempt to consider these. Uh, 
This statement, this truth that God gives Habakkuk is foundational for the theology that is fleshed out in the New Testament. And, and I don't want to get, I'm not trying to turn this into a, a theological argument that is all over the pages of Scripture. Uh, it's not just philosophical, it's practical. I make this statement because what God stated here in 610 B.C., when He speaks to Habakkuk, He repeats in Romans through Paul, in Galatians through Paul, and through whoever the author of Hebrews is. And you will not find, maybe, you will not find, she mouthed Paul, Maybe. You will, you will not find any more significant statement than that statement. And you will not find any more significant theological bodies, written bodies, than you will in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. So there's something here. We read it this morning in our confession, didn't we? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We're talking about faith. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and I want you to catch this because we're going to drill in on this for just a second. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith as it is written. And then Paul reaches back. Now, he reaches back through the Holy Spirit, reaches back to Habakkuk 2.4, for the righteous shall live by faith. So if we look at this statement that Paul makes, know that with the way Paul unpacks it, he's taking this statement to the place of justification. Because that's what he's talking about in Romans. Now, we don't hear the word justification, but understand Remember what Habakkuk's dilemma is? He is there in Judah among his covenant people and he sees all this stuff taking place and he is wondering, how are they going to stand? How are we going to stand? We are a covenant people and this is where we are. How will we be saved? And yet he knows they can't die completely because in chapter 1 and verse 12, what does he say? Are, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. In other words, he is saying, we're covenant people. You, you can't wipe us out. But I don't see how in the world this is going to work out. I don't see how you, a righteous God, will ever be able to work this out. In other words, how you will remain righteous in dealing with us. If you don't judge us, if you don't judge us, you're not righteous. If you do judge us, then you have wiped out the people that you said you were going to give life to. How is that possible? How is it possible? Well, that's what we want to look at. Because Paul is clear throughout his writings that the gospel he preaches was not unknown to those who lived before Christ. I want you to catch that. Jesus is the center of the gospel and the fullest revelation of God's saving purposes are found in Him. We sang that this morning, didn't we? 
My faith has found a resting place. He will hold me fast. He is the one who has suffered and bled and died. But even those who lived under the old covenant were saved. But how? How? That's, that's the dilemma that Habakkuk runs into. How? Well, Paul isn't stretching the use of this foundational text coming from Habakkuk. No, he's interpreting it in light of Christ, which is what he has to. We've talked about what his complaint was. What Habakkuk's complaint was. How are you going to deal with our sin? How are you going to deal with our sin and keep us alive? Because we certainly don't deserve life. Isn't that, what, isn't that what the unbeliever ultimately comes to to understand, I don't deserve life? Isn't that what is at the heart of the gospel when we're sitting with our friends and our family members? You don't deserve life. If there is any hope for life for you, if there's any chance of life for you, it rests in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trusting in Him. That's what it is. And then God tells him, He says, that the prideful, unrepentant rejecters of God will be punished. And then Habakkuk is even more concerned because he knows that they are, that His people are just as bad as those. And if God uses sinful people to punish His own people, what does that say about the condition of His own people? You ever thought about that? If God uses those who are more unrighteous than you to deal with your unrighteousness, at least in our minds, that they're worse than I am, what does that say about you? It says that our condition is exactly the same. And this is the reason he cries out, O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One. We shall not die. He isn't asking a question. But he's recalling the fact, as we said earlier, that Judah is his covenant people, Israel's covenant people, how will they be saved? In other words, God, how will your righteousness be seen? God said the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul tells us what that work of making the righteous or justifying the guilty shows the righteousness of God. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. Brian, I'm not even going to look at you. Because I, how many times have we ever turned to Romans 3 together? Yeah, hundreds of times. Hundreds, literally, in the last six years. Hundreds of times. But look, if you will, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest. Now remember, Hold back, hold your place there and go back to chapter 1 and verse 17, verse 16. Verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in verse 17, For, it is the, for in it, the gospel, that work that God has done, that good news, that, that yeah, I, I can get this worked out, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. And then when we get to verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God. So that's still the thing that's back in question again, remember. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And then catch this next statement. This was to show what? God's righteousness. Seems confusing in a way, doesn't it? That the righteous shall live by faith. In some ways. How's that possible? We're dealing with the righteous shall live by faith. Well, what makes them righteous? Well, we heard trusting in God. That is the beginning point, trusting in God. But really, what makes them righteous? The righteousness of Christ and His atoning work for them. Now this is big. This is big. Because that same statement that Paul draws from can also be translated, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. In fact, if you have a copy of ESV, if you'll look down there, there's probably a footnote down there to that effect. And isn't that what we hear about Abraham? His faith was counted to him as righteousness. Look in Romans chapter 4 just a minute. Beginning in verse 16. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. We've already heard that from our assurance of pardon. That we are saved by grace through faith. Okay? So let's hear it again in light of that. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, meaning that he was already past the age of being able to reproduce, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, who had already was too old to, to give birth and to conceive, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why stress that? Why stress it? Well, reading Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, places the emphasis on the type of life that one whom the Lord regards as righteous will demonstrate. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Romans, said this, One who lives by faith is a righteous person in the sight of God. The righteous live by trust. 
what was God pointing to whenever he told, made that simple statement, the prideful are going to be destroyed and the righteous shall live by faith. He was saying those who trust in me, those who exercise this faith in me over against everything else, these are those that I will make righteous in Christ. But we must be clear. There is an obedience that's connected with this faith that is acting upon it. But I want you to know this. That is never the ground of our acceptance before God. You know why? We sang it this morning when we said, He will hold me fast. We sang and confessed that what often fails our faith and our love often fail. So there is no way that that can be the ground. And that is not the ground for which God was pointing Habakkuk to. It was not the ground. And we have to be clear on that. They were justified then and now. And made righteous then and now. By God granting them faith to trust in Him for those then looking ahead to a time when they would receive a righteousness that they were not even sure how would come altogether, but they would trust in God. So we see that the righteous will live by faith because they have been made alive and justified in Christ. God awakened them to His glory, granted faith to believe, and they're justified and made righteous. So when God told Habakkuk the righteous shall live by faith, He was saying that those who trust in Me will live. They will be justified, those who trust in Me. Now how is that helpful? How is that point helpful in disciple making? I was trying to think about that. I'm not, and I'm not drawing at straws here to make this connection. No. There are at least two ways that this is helpful. First, it helps us to see the absolute necessity in sharing the gospel. That's the reason that our confession began with verse 16 of Romans 1, not verse 17. Why? Because Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is that so important? Because it is the gospel that people need to hear. A disciple cannot be made from someone who doesn't believe. Disciples are those who believe and then they are taught prior to that what must come. The gospel. Over and over and over again. And then second, once there's evidence that that person believes, then the ongoing work of teaching them becomes the disciple-making work. And we're, and we're going to look at this next week from 1 Thessalonians. But, but, but practically speaking, we must be committed to sharing the gospel. Now what I'm getting ready to say, I'm not saying to guilt you into anything. Okay? It, it, guilt has never worked. People have tried it on me. It doesn't work. It's been tried on you. It doesn't work. We will make commitments that we do not keep out of guilt. But it's really not a commitment. I was thinking this week as I was dealing with this text and thinking about our disciple making, mine and evangelism and yours. 
I was thinking about all the training that I have gone to. And I was thinking about all the training that I had led. And the hours of it just circled back through my mind over and over and over again. And this was my question to me, and I'll ask this question to you. Has it produced any results? Has it? You'll have to answer that for yourself in your life. But has it? I just concluded, we know we should tell others about Christ and His atoning work. And as believers, we know that we should articulate the gospel. And even here in the life of this church, we know that we should be making disciples. Why doesn't it happen? I want you to see how Habakkuk does this in his song. Notice that he says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Did you hear that today as we sang? That he has crushed the head of the one who has sought to destroy us with death. And then he moves from fear to faith. Look there if you will. I'm speaking specifically of beginning in verse 16. After he, after he rehearses this judgment, after he rehearses his judgment, he said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade. And there's this fear that is set in. And it's a holy fear. It's a good fear. But then notice what comes. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Why? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Notice that his verbal witness precedes these acts. He said, I will. In other words, he is giving testimony, which is what evangelism is. We give testimony and witness of what God has done, and it precedes disciple making. Why? Because people have to trust in Christ before they can be made into a disciple. So we have to be ardent evangelists and ardent disciple makers. So we see that God is addressing the issue of justification. They will live because they will be justified and they are justified or made righteous by God and this shows the righteousness of God and it is seen in Christ. But how do we press into this a little deeper? Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. So in Romans... Paul is dealing with this issue of righteousness. How righteousness is imputed. But notice what he says to the Galatians. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. 
For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And now, what does Paul do? He reaches all the way back to 610 B.C. to Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, which is what? That his faith was counted to him as righteousness, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Now, now to understand this, we have to know what's going on. Remember, Paul is addressing the situation that had taken place in the Galatian church. Folks had moved in after he had preached the gospel. Folks had believed and trusted in Christ. Their salvation, they understood, was in Christ and Christ alone. Judaizers come in, enter the ranks of the church, and they start teaching that the Jewish law must be observed. In addition to trusting Christ. That's what they were saying. Paul takes hard stand here. Real hard. If you hadn't understood how hard, read Galatians this afternoon. He takes a hard stand. That salvation is in Christ alone. And notice how he puts it. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. We're kind of a small group. I can say this to Brian. Brian, if you stand before the judge and you say it is evident, you better produce what? Some evidence. You better produce some evidence. Paul is looking out over the course of all of mankind. And you know what he doesn't see? There is not one person, save Jesus Christ, who lived and was justified by keeping the law. Why? Because it had cursed them. As soon as they were born, they fell under that curse of Adam that continued on with the curse of the law that damned them because why? Our love is weak. Our faith is weak. We reject and we deny. That was his evidence. The law can't save. Therefore, the keeping of the law will not justify. We know that in Habakkuk. Don't we? Think about it for a moment. When Habakkuk spoke to God and shared his burden for his people. What did God not say? He didn't say, tell them to return and keep the law. And they'll live. He could have said that and it could have changed their immediate circumstances. He didn't go back and tell them, well, tell them to start acting justly and dealing with justice right. 
But he didn't do that. That would have worked and changed the atmosphere and the, and the culture of the day. And, and isn't that what we're trying to do to some degree is change the culture of the day? Please hear me, church. This culture is damned. Do you understand that? This culture is damned. There is no turning the tide on this culture. The only hope that we have as individuals and the only hope that all of these people who live around us, the only hope that they have is not that this culture be made better, but that they trust in God and have life. God didn't tell them that they'd be saved if they acted justly. He didn't tell them they'd be saved if they would go back and keep the law. No law keeping was able to justify. God has in His sights and had in His sights when He was dealing with Habakkuk. He had in His sights eternal life and justification. That is the reason that His statement was remain prideful and die. Trust in Me and live. The righteous shall live by faith. And God pointed Habakkuk to faith in Him, trusting in God. Now how's that helpful in our disciple making? Well, if we're scurrying around trying to do all these things that are going to somehow or another uh, dress up a pig in the midst of this culture, just know that it's still a pig. Okay? Just know that it's still a pig. Put perfume on them. Still a pig. Stink's going to come back. Stink's going to come back. No other work will produce eternal results for life except the gospel and making disciples. And finally, and I know you're ready for this, uh, turn to Hebrews 10, 32-38, and I just... We, we, need to, we need to at least hear every time that that statement resurfaces. Because it means something. And what it meant to the Romans, what it meant to the Galatians, and what it meant to the Hebrews is exactly what God was pointing to when He was speaking to Abba. Hebrews 10, 32-38. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. He's talking about the people who were in prison for their faith. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property because you were connected with them and exposed to them. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. What did God tell Habakkuk? If it looks like it's taking a while, wait! I'm not going to delay. In other words, it's coming. And then he says this, but my 
righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the author of Hebrews makes this statement. It's just this bolster of confidence. Why? Because Christ will hold us fast. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. God was telling Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. You know the only thing that will see us through to the end? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the only thing that's going to see us through hard times and suffering and struggling? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Most especially. You know what will allow us to be able to stand before the judgment? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous are so because they have been made so by God through Christ's work. And then you should expect this question. How is this helpful for making disciples? The emphasis in disciple making is helping each other mature in Christ, encouraging one another. And that comes and drops like a ball back on us. We hear it all the time. But hear me say this today. I need you. I need you. We need each other. By God's design, we need each other. Why? So that we, those who have trusted in Christ, the righteous, shall live. How? By faith. By faith. Amen.